Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, October the 27th, 2020, and I know what you're thinking. Well, it's a Tuesday, so it's a Just Jack show on some random subject that's coming out of Jack's head. Uh, Jack's head is a little tired. Jack's head has been uh, preparing for TSP 20 workshop. Uh, Jack has been working really, really long, and Jack was reached out to. I I can't do that. I'm not the guy that can talk about myself in third person. I tried to do it for a joke, and I, 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 I just can't do it. Anyway, I was reached out to um, by John Pugliano, one of our favorite people from the Expert Council, about possibly doing something on automation and what is happening with COVID killing the dying as far as having jobs automated out of existence and the acceleration of that existing megatrend that John and I have been talking about for, oh, about four and a half, five years now. Uh, I, I believe that that trend has been accelerated by somewhere between five and ten years of acceleration. John says minimum five, so we kind of agree. So we, we're, we're going to talk about that today. And actually, we already did. I had John on early this morning. And as usual, when John and I get together, it went long. Like, it, it, what actually happened is it went long enough that it's like, this is going to be a really long episode. And instead of trying to speed it up and finish it and leave it really long, I went ahead and made it longer. I thought, I know, since Jack's brain needs a uh, I can't do it. Since my brain needs a rest, we'll make it into two shows. So that's what we're going to do. So the show will end... At not the most clear-cut point that it should end today. It, it was the best thing I could find. It was about the middle, a little bit to the other side of the middle. And then tomorrow we'll, we'll continue with this interview in part two. So the first one, and there is a pretty good differentiator in the two parts. While we'll talk about solutions some today, we're going to define the problem mostly today and talk about addressing the problem. And tomorrow we're going to talk more about capitalizing on the problem in the form of opportunity. That's how this interview broke down. So I'll have John on in just a minute. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and uh, start off with a quote of the day. I was looking for something speaking about the future today, future or technology's future, something like that. And as I was browsing through some appropriate quotes, I started looking at associated quotes. A lot of times I look for a thing, and it's not the direct thing that I find. It's the associated thing that I find. And I found one from Jack Welch. He's one of my favorite authors of all time. And uh, one time he said about the future, speaking of your own future in the form of destiny, was control your own destiny or someone else will. And that's one of those places where I'm like, Wait a minute. Sometimes when I think I have an original thought, do I plagiarize people without realizing it? Because I'm very conscious of that. A lot of people ask, why don't, I, why don't you listen to more podcasts yourself or something like that? And uh, it's because I do have this weird form of an almost identic memory. I am not the guy that if you show me 27 shapes can tell you what those shapes were in order and what color each one was. That's That's not how it works. And with reading, it's... I, I'm far more likely to be able to tell you everything that I read, but not in that way. It's verbal. It's audio. 
when I hear somebody say something and I'm interested in it, even if I'm not paying attention, I will have a tendency to be able to repeat it as though I memorized it as a script. So much so that if I consume enough information that way over time, I will repeat information that belongs to somebody else, and I will honest to God believe that it's mine. And I, I, I have to be very cognizant of that. That's why you'll often hear me try to credit or say, I don't know where I got this, but it's not my original thought, right? Like I, I try to be – because I, I think it's just the responsible thing to do uh, when you're a personality. And what this makes me think of that I say all the time, and like I said, I've read everything Jack Welsh ever wrote, I've read, um, is that if you don't design your life, somebody else will. Control your own destiny or somebody else will. I actually say if you don't design your own life, you will live the life designed for you because it, it has been. And that could not be more true in what we're going to talk about today. What we're going to talk about today is so much in line with this. Um, one point today you told John say something about the Reagan quote of when your neighbor loses his job, it's a recession, and when you lose your job, it's a depression. And that is so much the case that it doesn't really matter if the country does really great if you do really bad. And while it does matter because of empathy, it doesn't really matter to your life if the country's not doing well, but you are. And that's all within your control, believe it or not. That, that's what we're going to get to with this interview today. How do you take this period that will spell doom and gloom for some, meh mediocrity for others and extreme opportunity for some and be among the third group. And let's talk about what extreme opportunity is to get our minds right going into this. I don't necessarily think extreme opportunity means you're going to be the next Elon Musk. You might be. I have no problem with it if you are. Maybe you'll be better at it than he is. I don't know. Um, or the next Bill Gates or the next Steve Jobs or whatever. When I say extreme opportunity, I mean the ability for you to get the, what you want the way you want on your terms. I never wanted to be the guy that could be like, my firm is worth $50 million, because I didn't want all the problems and all the uh, associated angst that came with it. I, and I didn't want to give that much of myself. It's more, it takes so much more work than people think it does. I wanted to be able to get up in the morning and do whatever the hell I wanted to do. That was it. That's what TSP was for me. TSP was the ability for me to see and seize upon an opportunity. And there are going when there are problems, there are opportunities. So as we go through this, and as we hammer mostly on the problem today, already be thinking that way. And then we'll come back tomorrow and talk about really capitalizing on it. So you can, in the words of Jack Welsh, control your own destiny, or someone else will. With that... Let me welcome back to TSP, John Pugliano. Hey, John, man, welcome back to the show. Hey, Jack, great to be on. You are an absolute regular on TSP as an expert council member, but there are probably people that tune in you know, today for the first time, what the hell's going on with this concept of permanent unemployment, that sounds bad, and they don't know who or what a John Pugliano is. So fill, fill the new listeners in. Who are you and what's your background? Sure. Hey, I'm the uh, quintessential uh, 20 year overnight success. Um, like a, you know, like a lot of your listeners, um, a former military person joined the Marine Corps at 17. Um, spent, uh, seven or so years in and out of the military. Um, a 
eventually, though, gravitated, got a more formal education, went into, um, like you in a lot of ways, went into sales. In fact, our, our careers parallel each other quite a bit. I, I determined that the best way to make money um, was to be in sales. It wasn't so much that I enjoyed it, but I wanted to make money. I went into industrial sales and spent a 20-year career first traveling the U.S. and then really traveling the world selling industrial products. And um, over that period of time, I developed a, a passion that I had, which was investing and trading stocks, and uh, got to the point where I uh, could be financially independent and started my own investment firm. And um, now I, I run a, uh, I run my own private um, money market, uh, not money market fund, but my own private money management fund and um, or, or firm, and um, get to manage my own money as well as other people's. Cool, man. So in all of this, we've, we've been talking throughout the entire COVID fiasco. And as we've been discussing this, I came up with a phrase way, way back when this all started, maybe about a month into it. And that is COVID is killing the dying. But when I say that, people always think I'm talking about like old people. And I just, I do just want old people to die. And I, and I follow it up with, and I'm not talking about people. There is a massive number of industries and vertical markets that are already in deep trouble. They were either dying or they were on the verge of becoming a fraction of what they were before. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the, that, that phrase of COVID killing the dying is perfect because we are accelerating that move to automation, robotics, uh, digitization, you know, call it whatever you want to. I wrote a book uh, about four years ago called The Robots Are Coming, and that was really um, what we're seeing now just on steroids now because all of that automation is getting pulled forward. And kind of getting back to where I mentioned, you know, I spent 20, 25 years as an industrial sales guy. I started in 1990 selling to factories primarily in the Midwest. All Every little town had one or two uh, you know, smaller, large factories, manufacturing facilities, and they were major employers for these small Midwestern towns. And by the time I ended my career, you know, 20 some years later, most of those businesses were, were gone. They'd been shut down. And I had migrated from selling in the Midwest or in the United States to selling in Asia or Europe or South America because everything had to be, had been offshored. And, and that was the trend that we saw, you know, through like through the eighties and nineties. Um, into the 2000s. But for the last 15 or so years, the big trend has, has not been so much the offshoring, but the digitization, the loss of jobs because of um, you know, robotics, information technology, uh, just the various ways that we've gone from an analog world to a digital world. And that's that's been taking jobs away for the last you know at least decade to 15 years. That's why I wrote about it, and what we're seeing with COVID is just an, a larger escalation in that direction. And it makes perfect sense, right? Because you're, you're, you've created a situation where people are being required to work from home. You've created a situation where we're being required to distance from each other, and the human being is now seen as a, a dangerous thing. Like, I think that's part of the brainwashing. Like, they've actually convinced us it's almost like a, a new age of mysticism, like a, a dark magic. 
that other human being over there could kill you by looking at you more than, you know, if they're within six feet of you and if they're not wearing their mask talisman. And whether or not there's any validity there is irrelevant to a corporation making a decision about what to do with its fiduciary responsibility to keep making money. Like, they, they can think politically whatever they want about this, but I now have to make money in a world where people are less likely to leave their homes, where it's harder to have employees come into the office. And is not automation and other leveraged technologies the direct way to address that? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's, it's just part of that trend that was going to happen anyways. You know, you've, you've often talked about the politicians will come out and promise or talk about things that are happening anyways, yeah. you know, just so they could take credit for it or, or, you know, charges for it. Um, and, and, and that's part of what's just anyways, it's been going on. I mean, you look back to the 1970s, you know, I was, I was a kid, the 1970s, General Motors was the, the largest company in the S&P 500. They, had $24 billion in sales and 400,000 employees. General Motors, 1970. Today, Apple Computer, number one company in the S&P 500, they've got more than 10 times the sales that General Motors did. They've, something they're approaching $280 billion in sales at Apple. They do it with less than 140,000 employees. Hmm. So basically 10 times the sales and about a quarter of the number of people to do that. And that's that's just the the way uh, the advancements in our society are working. We we can make more money and more profits with less people. And now with COVID, because um, you know there were there were institutional and um, uh, just personal barriers and biases to people working at home. You know, your manager didn't he couldn't he couldn't see you, so he didn't think you were working or productive, so he didn't want you to work remotely or work from home. Yeah. Well, now. COVID gotten away with all that, right? So they can't have that excuse anymore. Yeah. Or, you know, all these different things. It's what I call the test drive, right? Like, so you sent everybody home and some bitch, they actually did their work because turns out even if they're working from home, they want to keep their job. In fact, they might want to keep their job even more because it's, it, it's, they like working from home. And they're not wasting time in the office with inner office politics and talking around the water cooler and, you know, just all the Two time. Two to three hours a day on. of commute time. The commute time, absolutely. So, so all that has has taken us to where, you know, the trend from working for, you know, shoot, I've worked for home on and off since 1990. You know, depending upon different jobs I had, most of the time I did work, I had an office from home. But that's because I was, you know, a field salesperson. Um, but but now that is becoming much more acceptable, and the genie's not going to go back in the bottle. Not not everyone's going to work from home, but there's just so many more people that are going to be working from home now that. Uh, a year ago, you you wouldn't have thought it was possible, but just because of all those institutional and social barriers. That's just one example, um, but that 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 carryover effect. I mean, the effect it has with medicine, because of all the rules and regulations and the way you're reimbursed with, uh, the way doctors are reimbursed and things. You know, they couldn't do the telemedicine. Well, mm -hmm. you know, Shazam. Now you can do telemedicine. What if you're sick? Why would you go into your if you had a if you have a cold, just a regular yeah. cold? Or yeah. the flu or whatever. Why would you go to your doctor's office to get a prescription for him to tell you you have a cold and you already know you do yeah. and, and contaminate everybody when you can just do it through Zoom? or Well, let's you know, even look at it higher than that. Okay, so I have the cold or I have the, the COVID cold, which is for most people what it is, or I have the flu. Uh, and you have, you have the COVID cold. Bill has the cold cold. 
I have the flu. We all go to the doctor together and make a great big Petri dish. Like, what world does this make sense in? And then, we, well, there's no substitute for directly talking to a patient. And then you do this, and you know what happens. Your doctor walks backwards, you know, literally like backs into the thing, asks you three questions, checks something off, and goes back out the door. And you spend an hour and a half to actually see your doctor for five minutes if you're lucky. And all you've done is marinate in this Petri dish of various illnesses. And I'm not saying, and I know you're not either, that like there is no time where you really need to go to a doctor for hands-on medicine, but the vast majority of medical visits are not that. Yeah, and, and a year ago, it was virtually impossible to do something telemedicine. I mean, yeah. and again, because of the institutional barriers to mm -hmm. it, the way doctors could bill. You could do it, but you couldn't get paid. You, you could do it because you couldn't get paid or, or even, you know, the, just the legal ramifications of it. You, you couldn't do it. Well, now, you know, COVID is just what, what may have taken 10 years to get to telemedicine. COVID did in less than a year. And again, that's, that's what we're going to see trickling throughout the, uh, throughout the economy. And on so, medicine, so COVID just is definitely killing the dying. Just before we move on from medicine and then, I think the other thing that's gotten leveraged heavily that should have been forever as a cost-saving mechanism is lab work. So you go to your doctor, he takes your blood or whatever. Um, you know, I, I work with a, a non-traditional uh, physician who does use blood work. And so they set me up for a blood panel for whatever they want to know about me. And I make a pre-arranged appointment. And I go down to LabCorp. I walk through the door. And I go up to sign in, and they hand me I mean, your analysis, too, so they hand me a cup. I go pee. I walk out of the bathroom. There's a girl, a phlebotomist, waiting for me. And I'm, I'm literally there for less time than I would run into if, if, the, if the pay at the pump wasn't work and I wanted to pick up a six-pack. It, it almost takes me longer to do that at the convenience store than to go in and out of LabCorp for a blood panel. So if you take telemedicine and that together – You get to a point where I see a vast number of people that, that are, are actually, when we see medical kind of booming as an industry, also like jobs being cut eventually because I, if I'm a doctor, I don't need anywhere near the office staff anymore. Yeah, it's that support and administrative and operational staff that, that as we get into this and start talking about the permanent unemployment, it's going to be those exact people, the The, the staff, you know, the ancillary people, the things that help grease the wheels and make things work, but don't necessarily do the direct work. Those people are in danger and not just medicine. I mean, what you exactly just talked about with diagnostics and uh, lab type testing, you can take that scenario and apply it to exploration for oil. Right. We don't we don't need the, the the same skills for geologists to have to go out and find oil and things like we used to. Now we can you know, drill a hole or use other techniques to get the samples. And we have these you know, amazing test procedures that can tell because of big data and, and um, all the sensors and things they have where the oil is. So it's 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 more productive and, and faster to drill for oil than it used to be. So you don't need all the people. Same thing with, um, you know. Maintenance, uh, maintenance on an aircraft. Uh, you don't have to do all the uh, scheduled maintenance like you had to before, or even big equipment in a factory, because you can send the you know the oil out for testing, and they know exactly how many parts per million metal you know metal shavings are in there. And so, hey, you really don't need to change that filter, or that bearing's going bad because there's a sensor on it. We know that that bearing needs 
maintenance over the weekend, so you don't have the have the line breakdown like it used to. I mean, just that's you, that's something like, and I guess that's probably going into a lot of other areas of maintenance that I never really thought of, because that happens all the time, right? You're on your plane. If you're me, you sat in first class so that you can order wine and drink the entire time and not have to wear your mask. And you think you're about to take off, and then you have a maintenance delay. Well, that's exactly what you said. Like, they went in and they did everything. Thank God. I'm not complaining. Like, when the pilot don't want to take off, I don't want to take off. But they found that problem during an inspection where we now are developing technology where that problem can be identified before it's a problem. For it's a problem, and and uh, again across the board, think about your Coca-Cola. You're manufacturing all these, uh, you know, soda bottles, three thousand a second, or however many of those things fly through a machine. You know that that machine that was always breaking down, or whenever it broke down, it just cost so much to to get it back up. They would do whatever they could to get it up. Well, now they have sensors and and more test type things where they can. Um, do the analysis to know what's going to happen beforehand, and so they can not lose the valuable production time. That's making us more efficient. And, and, and let me then, let me point something need, out there. And then there. you need less people, right? You need yeah. less backup guys. Let me let me point something out there. This is in every industry. This sounds exactly exactly in a different way. Tommy Chung, right? The same but different man. Um, to the product line that I was helping to develop, market, and sell before I started TSP through a company called Syrian. And what we were developing was software that did this in the wireless industry so that AT&T could look at Manhattan and say, this is exactly when we need to put in a new switch. And we don't need to put it in until this point. Up until we developed that software, that work was done by over 400 engineers. Now, when you are an engineer making decisions like that for AT&T, guess what, John? You're not real worried about the minimum wage going to $15 an hour. Right. They, these are not people who are poorly paid. These are all mid six figure earning individuals at the top end into like, you know, like people making like at the bottom end of that group is making 150 grand a year. The work that used to take hundreds of engineers with the software we developed, and this is 15 years ago, actually 20 almost now. That's scary as shit. Can be done by half a dozen. Now, I know that's only a few hundred people, but. Okay, now every wireless carrier. Now where do those guys go? What are they going to do? These are highly skilled people. But you start doing that in every industry. The airlines are, have this type of predictive algorithm now that reduces the headcount of white-collar jobs to determine how many people you put on a plane, which this this point now is none. But that will, you know, that'll all come back. But we're getting to the point where so many people that have worked in these different maintenance, logistics, technology fields that are highly compensated. These are not just guys that, you know, pack boxes for a living getting put out by a robot. They're getting put out by technology that is robotic, but we don't think of it because it doesn't, you know, move around. It's it's technological robots, right? It's algorithm-driven robot intelligence. And it doesn't mean there's no place for that engineer. It means that one engineer does what 200 did. And if you're a tech company, John, which which person, which group of demographic do you need to automate first? The, the person you can hire off the street and train in 15 minutes and pay $15 an hour, or the person that requires a degree, 10 years of experience, and really needs to know their stuff, and it's going to cost you 200 grand. Who do you want to automate out first? Yeah, you're going to get rid of the high end. That's, that's, that's why I've said that this time around, when, it, when we looked at past generations in the 1970s, 1980s, either when jobs were replaced by automation or when they were offshored to Japan or China, uh, you know, a lot of that was low-skilled, low 
um, low skilled labor type jobs. That's not the case. All those are already gone. Today, as digitization, automation, all these things come in, it's going to hit the high end. It's going to hit um, the professionals, the doctors, the attorneys, the mid-level managers. Those are the guys that um, that automation is good enough. I mean, we call it artificial intelligence because now it's smart, right? And it can replace those higher paid workers. And a, a lot of people are, again, this is getting pulled forward because of COVID, because they're seeing that they can make these advances faster and that, you know, things don't fall apart when they get rid of the employees. They can, they can use these technologies. Uh, what's, what's really, I think, going to get bad about the, the permanent unemployment side of this is, is that you're going to hear in the news that the unemployment rate is going down and things are getting better. And that's all going to be true because the service jobs are going to come back. The, um, you know, the, the restaurant workers, the, the waiters, the cooks, those people have been artificially unemployed, right? This is the, um, a planned recession. We, we didn't, the restaurants didn't shut down because of lack of demand. It wasn't like the food was bad or people didn't want to go out anymore or, um, you know, they didn't like the quality of the, the, the restaurants cooking. The reason the restaurants have all gone out of business or are going out of business is because the government made them shut down. Well, that will come back. It may not be the same owners. You know, there's going to be a lot of bankruptcies and there may not be the same businesses. location, but people that know how location. to run a restaurant will get financing and open a new restaurant. Because so, yes, yeah, someone because it, it, because like we just mentioned, it's a it's a actually a, a minimal barrier to entry, right? It's much easier to start a restaurant than it is to start, um, you know, a glass factory or something. Sure, so, sure. Uh, so so those jobs will come back, and and waiters and waitresses and cooks and those things will come back. What what and so you'll see the numbers will go from, you know, we've already gone from you know, 20% unemployment to 15 and now we're down below 8%. Well, you know, we'll probably get back down to five or six or four or something. But, but the difference will be that the ones coming on are going to be those easier to replace, easier to, to train service jobs. And the, that two or three or 4% that, uh, that don't come back that are permanently unemployed are going to be the, that mid-level. You know, it's not, not, not the ultra high pay, but certainly not the low end. It'll be the, the mid-level manager. $150,000 engineer, the $120,000 yeah, yeah, exactly middle that. manager, the $90,000 team leader, whatever. 80, $80 to $100,000, $80 to $150,000. That's the sweet spot that is going to get most impacted by this recession. And that wasn't the case in previous recessions. You know, and isn't that the American dream? Isn't that, I mean, most people don't want to be CEO of American Airlines. Most people don't want to be politicians, lawyers, and doctors. Most people want to go to school, get a good education, work nine to five. They want to walk out the door. And even if they have to work till seven o'clock tonight, when it's 7.01 and they walk out that door, they don't want to see, hear, or talk to work again until 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. You know, maybe once in a while they do a late project or something like that. But overall, they just want to work and make a living. And that's the American dream. That's what most people want. And at 70 to 100 and a half, 65 even, 100 and a half, like people, if they have two income families, they can live really good on that in most of the country, not, you know, not San Francisco. That sector getting hit, that's like the backbone of spending and the economic engine of this country. And, you know, all that money going into retirement, like when you get laid off from a job like that, you're not contributing 10% of your income to, to all these stocks that are being artificially inflated anymore. Like, this hurts in a way I don't think people can really understand. 
Yeah, and the and the real the real hurt to all this is is that it will be permanent. You know, just like the uh, the secretaries in the typing pool in the 1960s. You know, when they got rid of all the typewriters. Yeah. Uh, those those women weren't going to get a job typing somewhere else. It wasn't like they lost their job at Coca Cola and they're going to go work as a typist for Pepsi. They just lost that, that, that type typing job went away across the board, and that's that's what we're going to see. And and again, I'm not predicting uh, you know massive uh, depression here or anything because it isn't going to affect 90% of the population, but it's going to affect uh, a high paid, um, you know that that middle slice of the middle class, which are going to take I think quite a bit of time to recover. If you look at the, the 2008 recession, the, the Great Recession, we actually didn't. We actually didn't uh, peak in unemployment until the, the fall of 2009, but it took seven and a half years to replace all those jobs. Yeah, and, and yeah. we say replace in terms of numbers, right? To get the, you know, whatever it was, 16 million jobs back. We it took those seven and a half years to get the 16 million jobs back. Jobs back, but a lot of those were new jobs that didn't exist to begin with. I mean, they those. You know, a lot of the construction jobs and manufacturing jobs that were lost after the Great Recession, they just never came back. The, the, the new jobs that came back in a lot of cases were lower-paying jobs. Yeah, and in, I just want to – In the service sector, which is being hit again right now very badly. It's kind of a middle-aged head and old-age fart right now. I just want to give people a little context on how long it takes for us to catch up with stuff like this because we it does. It takes longer than people realize. I'm old, but I'm not that old yet. I was in high school in the late 80s. And my high school, I have to give them credit, they had a pretty decent set of programs. Not everybody went through high school on the same path. And I was always very entrepreneurial, very business-oriented, so I went on a business path. So I, I took some stuff in high school that I have to give credit. I still use today. I took courses on accounting. right? And then once I got a little older and learned Excel and put those two together, I could do financial modeling, I could do forecasting that really helped me in my sales career and what have you and and that worked that worked out really really well but on that path this is 1989 i was taught how to type on an electric typewriter i had courses where we were taught shorthand and i was taught how to use carbon paper in 1989 all three of those are example of an educational system doing the best that it could. Doing, I believe, far better than they're doing today in high school, by the way. Teaching are absolutely at that point archaic skills because that machine cannot move fast enough to adapt to reality. Flash forward to 2020. We have technologies going irrelevant in two to three years right now. And our education system cannot possibly get people up to speed to adapt to this if people are going to rely on it. So I think people are going to have to rely on themselves and self-directed learning to adapt to this. This is the only way. And I kind of want to use this moment to transition to what should people be doing if they're if they're looking out and thinking, you know, those unemployment crosshairs, I'm not sure, but I kind of feel the sniper rifle on me. There's this red dot that keeps kind of following me around and taking out people around me, but it hasn't hit me yet. And I feel like maybe I'm next. What should that person be doing right now, John? Yeah, exactly. Um, hey, I guess to that end, I mean, think about what Ronald Reagan said about when your neighbor loses a job, it's a recession. When you lose your job, it's a depression. <laughs> so yeah. that's exactly what we're talking about here. Again, I'm not predicting the collapse of the economy, but I'm saying for the for those three to four million people that are mid-level 
that were earning, you know, seventy to one hundred fifty thousand dollars that they're losing their job now or they're about to lose their job. It's a depression for them. It doesn't, sure. it doesn't matter that the stock market is going to go hit an all time high for those people. They've, you know, they're having a, a hard time paying their mortgage and they're going to go, be in crisis mode. So that's really, that's what we want to talk about today is not, not how this is going to impact the economy, but how it's impacting individuals. Mm-hmm. And the first thing people need to do is, you know, just in terms of they got to get a job. Uh, you and I are entrepreneurs. We think in terms of starting businesses and things like that, but that's not most people. Most people, like you said, they just want to, they want to get a paycheck. They want to do a good, good job. They want to go to work and they want to get compensated for it. And so if you're that individual and you've either lost your job or you think you might be losing it, first thing, man, start defining your value. The, in, in the business world and even in government jobs and things, I mean, it ultimately comes down to value. Companies don't hire you because they like you or because you're friendly or whatever. Uh, they don't, they don't hire you because they need to have a quota for something. They hire you because somewhere, you know, in the, the cog in their system, you're making the money. And that's because of the value you bring with it. So sit down and, and think about what skills and abilities do you have? What types of achievements have you done over your career? What are these things? Concrete examples that you can go to. A new employer, you can go to a job interview or put in your resume or whatever and say, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm trained to do. This is how I've done it. And these are the results I get by it. You're basically saying, I can make you money. If you hire me, I can come in and make your your operation more efficient. I can make it run smoother. I can produce better or you know whatever your unique talent is. But you've got to be able to quantify that. And it's it, what I'm saying sounds really simple. But most people don't do that. Most people don't have, you know, because our lives are so complicated. You know, even when you ask me to introduce myself to the audience, well, shoot, I'm, I'm 59 years old. Where do I start? You know, <laughs> which, which part of how I got to where I'm at do I tell you? Yeah. And, and we don't, we don't have that. We just call it an elevator speech, you know, in case you're ever in the elevator riding up to, to the, to your office with the CEO. He's in the elevator with you. And he asks you what you do or what, you know, what you're working on. You got to have that 30 second elevator speech to tell the boss what you're doing. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what most people don't think about. They don't have that. They don't have a good understanding of what their value is. Cause they think, well, I make this much an hour. This is my salary. And, and, um, I'm an accountant or I'm a, uh, uh, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm an engineer or something, but yeah, but, but what do you really do? What, why are you earning that paycheck? What is it that you do that makes your company money? Those are what you really have to define and, and come up with concrete examples of. And you that's know, where I, I think people need to start. Robert Kiyosaki in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is probably the best of his books, and the rest made money off the first one, um, which, by the way, is a complete work of fiction for anybody out there that thinks that we, we don't know that already. But it was still a great book in changing the way people think. He said that you would a- he would ask people, what is your business? What business are you in? And, like, the guy's a bank teller, so he'd say, well, I'm a, I'm a banker. Oh, so you own a bank. Well, no. Okay, then you're not a banker. Are you at least a loan officer or something? No, I'm a bank teller. Okay, then your your business is customer service. You see what I'm saying? Like like people don't actually define what they do. They identify with a job title, and then they assign a, a name against that title. My rule for this type of like elevator speech, whether you're selling yourself, selling a product, was always this. And you hit it perfectly with the setup there of, 
you know, what part of my life? I'm in my 50s. I used to be 12. There's a lot going on in between there. And if you give a person in that scenario too much information that doesn't pertain to what they actually care about, you lose them. But what I've found works really, really well, and it seems odd, can you start out with something that they don't think they care about? And very quickly, I'm talking under 30 seconds, transition to something they care about very much and connect those two things into why you can do that thing they care about better than anybody else because of this thing that you started out with that they don't care about. And that goes back to like sales training used to do. Like you walk into an office and you're meeting with somebody, a decision maker, and they have a fish on the wall. Every single salesperson that walks in there is going to say something about that fish. Unless you love fishing more than life itself, shut up about the fish. <laughs> right? Because you're not different. But if you notice the fish and you say something about it and it looks like you faux pot at the beginning because the guy rolls his eyes and say, man, I love fish and let me tell you about this trip I was just on. Now I'm supposed to be talking about setting up a distributor day or something. And unless it turns out that fish is only there because it's like PA put it there because they thought it looked good. We're going to have a commonality at that point. And I'm not saying to always go th to that angle, but always try to take something about yourself that's totally unique that doesn't seem to pertain to the value you bring and immediately go to that value and how those two things are brought together. So if you were to start off like I did about being a kid growing up poor in the coal region, and then you tie that to a work ethic. You see what I mean there? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I can think of so many examples through my life, and particularly in sales, how making that connection worked. And, and actually, we'll probably get to that in a, in a little bit here because we, we got to talk to even how we get the get to there that yeah. point but, yeah. but you're absolutely right a quick story i remember one time and this wasn't uh wasn't trying to sell anybody thing i was actually trying to start a business and i was i was talking to different franchisees to get a feel for what these you know how they ran their businesses they liked them and i was talking to this one guy that uh he just he didn't want to give me any information he just was closed-lipped and wouldn't say a thing sure and and I'm, i'm like trying to pull teeth to get anything out of this guy would not talk to me and i happened to look out the corner of my eye i could see back in his office he had a picture on his Uh, on his wall of an F4 Phantom. It was a Vietnam-era F4 Phantom. Uh, squadron was Trip Tray. I happened to have been in that squadron, you know, 15 years after him. Yeah. But, uh, oh, it's done. I, I had no, Your brothers. I had no, connection, had no connection to the Vietnam War or anything, but I knew that aircraft. I knew that squadron. And I said, and as I'm leaving, I'm said, yeah, you were with Trip Tray. I was with Trip, you know, boom. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was there for two hours. I couldn't leave. It's like being in the same frat or something, or you're both yeah, masons or whatever. It just because we established that trust, you know. Because I was coming off the street, he had no idea who I was. He didn't want to tell me anything. And then once, for whatever reason, once oh, this guy was in, you know, we have this military connection and this fraternity type connection. Boom, he opens up his books to me. I literally, I had to pull myself out of there because he wouldn't let me leave. See, and, and those are those are the kind of things that this all the we talk about the robotics, we talk about automation, we talk. At the end of the day, though, we're all humans, and, and it's that humanity and that creativity that's what's going to keep us employed and keep the world moving because it's it's that human connection and the human touch that, that ultimately the new products and the innovation and all the things come from. You know, and I think that people would look at that and go, well, that's pretty high level. Being in the same military unit, that is something that is uh, – and you can't fake that. I mean, if you do, you'll get slaughtered or whatever – Uh, but it's 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 kind of a high-level thing that was just something that was lucky, but yet you saw it and you keyed in on it, and of course you would, or you wouldn't have been any good at your job. 
But to just drive home how trivial this can be, I was dealing with a guy one time, uh, it was a district manager for uh, Graybar, which is a big electrical distributor. And this guy was impossible to get certain things done with, apparently. They called him like an event Nazi, so if you wanted to run some kind of a counter day or something, he just didn't do that. He didn't believe and he thought you were wasting his people's time. We go in, and I'm trying to get my new reps kind of to really to trust the new leader type thing, and I happen to notice he has a picture of a Siberian Husky on his desk. And I figure it must be his dog. And you got to have a, a guy has to have a special place in his heart to have a picture of his dog, like not with the kids or something, by himself. And I happen to own a Siberian Husky at the time, and I, I love the breed. And so I mention it. We spent almost two hours talking about Siberian Huskies. What vacuum cleaner was best for the fact that you have to vacuum every day? Shit like that. We're leaving. I'm like, can we run a counter day? Sure, no problem. And my rep was sitting there. Like you could see, he was so uncomfortable the entire visit. When are we going to get to business? When are we going to get to business? He was like, yeah, no problem. I don't know why people think I don't want to do that. We leave it. He goes, the reason people don't think he wants to do that is because he never wants to do that. Yeah, but you, you're talking to him about that. That's why you're there. I was trying to make a new friend. And, like, that's what you got to do. But you got to bring other things with it, your skills, your achievements, and market yourself. Let's talk about marketing ourselves. And I think in your notes, it kind of leads back to what I always used to say, like, When you were a young guy, a lot of these people are trying to, or a young gal, and you were trying to find a, a date, you, uh, you went all out. And a lot of people don't, I don't think, bring that to their job search. Exactly. Yeah. And, and this, this is the big thing is when you're, you know, we, we've, now we've defined our skills and our abilities. We, we, we have these concrete things that we know that we can do and we got to market it, right? We got to tell that story. It's like going on a first date. You, if you go on that first date, you're going to make sure that, uh, you know, you, your, your hair looks good. You're nice and clean. You brushed your teeth. Yeah. Uh, you're going to put your you best stink. foot forward, right? You don't, you, you want to be, you want to look the best on that first date because, you know, in the first 30 seconds to 30 minutes, it's going to determine whether or not there's a second date. And that's what you want to do when you're, when you're reaching out to a prospective employer. You got to act like it's a first date and, And this is the time to tell your story. But the beauty of it is, is that you can brag and you can, uh, like you maybe would do on a first date, embellish things and you can create, uh, like Kiyosaki's book, right? A little level of fiction to some of this stuff. I'm, I'm not saying that you're, you're going to go out and lie to people, but you, you want to create that story so that you stand out and you're different than everybody else. Because if you're applying for a job that everyone's applying for, you're obviously all going to have similar skills or else you wouldn't be applying for the job or you wouldn't be at that part of the interview process. So you got to come up with ways that they remember you. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, not only so they remember you, but so you get that interview to begin with. You can't just fill out an application online and think that, you know, you're going to get a call from the hiring manager. You got to come up with ways to make that first date, um, creativity, you know, creative enough and, and you've bragged enough and you used your, your artistic license to, to get them to look at you because they're literally looking at hundreds, if not thousands of applications. Yeah, definitely. Like I've always said, if you, if you interview on a Friday and that hiring manager doesn't think about you on a Sunday, you're probably not getting the job, assuming somebody else made that happen. And let me be clear for special people. 
in a positive way. <laughs> like <laughs> what, what I always wanted from an employee when I was interviewing a prospective employee or always wanted to leave behind with an employer I was interviewing with, I wanted them at least at one point to think, you know what, even if I don't hire him, I, I really hope he doesn't work for my competitor. If you do that, the only way you're not getting hired is they can't afford you or they the position's been filled before they got a chance to interview and they didn't know it. Yeah. Like, it, if somebody's afraid that you'll work for a competitor, they they will take you off the market. Yeah, or, or they'll refer you to somebody else within their network, right? They, they're like, you know, I'd love to hire you, but I can't. But you yeah. should work for our supplier, right? Yeah. Our supplier or, or let me, people like you. since we're in the widget market, let me get you in the sprocket market the hell away from me, right? One way exactly. or another, like, I don't want you in my backyard working for my direct competition. Let me either put you in a friendly part of my chain, like you're saying, or let me, let me help you move over here. I think you'd be really good at selling sprockets. Let me make my cogs. Like, I've had that exact thing happen. Like, you know... We put this out. We were going to hire somebody. Some shit happened in corporate. I went through the interview process because I said it, and because I was wanting to see if there's another place I could fit you. You don't really fit in any other thing I have, but let me introduce you to somebody. And that's exactly what that was. I don't want this some bitch selling computer test equipment in my backyard because this is going to suck. I'm going to lose bit. I got to get this guy somewhere else. And That is incredibly valuable, and I think it's a skill set in itself, but, boy, it's one I would be developing right now if I were a professional. Yeah, and along those lines, when people are thinking about their skill sets and their achievements and things, and they're, they're going to apply for these jobs, uh, people also get too narrow. They, they need to expand, like we're talking about, thinking about working up and down the supply chain in the field you're in, or um, not only you know working for competitors and things, but like you mentioned, totally out of the industry, going from – going from uh, this sprocket to that widget. Once you define your skills and your abilities, you're going to probably find out that you're not limited to just one thing or e even a particular field. Just because you were an engineer doesn't mean you can't be a teacher. Or uh, just because you're an engineer and you were on the, uh, uh, the, say, test facility side of it, it doesn't mean you can't go on the product development side. You, you, you need to look broadly at what your abilities are, again, because the market is changing and the job you have may no, may no longer exist. And so you're going to have to go either up or down in, in skill level, in, um, uh, you know, in, in the sector itself. And in some cases, when I say down, even maybe accept a lower paying job, you know, because back to if you're that if you're that 55 year old guy that's laid off and you were making one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You may not find that job again. You no. may have to settle for a eighty, ninety, hundred thousand dollar job, and you've got to have your story. No one's going to want to hire you. They're going to tell you you're overqualified. Yeah. And but if you need that job, right? If you know you're not getting a hundred fifty thousand dollar job, and you're prepared to settle for the hundred thirty thousand dollar job, you need to be able to position yourself when you go into that interview to meet that that objection, knowing that they're going to say you're overqualified. Yeah. You need to address it head on and say, no, listen, I, and, and whatever it is, again, this is where you're creative and you're, you're, you're using your artistic license to maybe even come up with some fictional story here of yeah. why you're, uh, you know, they, they don't want to offer you a lower paying job because they know in six months when the economy improves and you can get a $150,000 job again, you're going to quit and go to them, you know, go to the, go to the next job. And so you, that, that's why you've got to position it where you're telling them, no, I, I'm, I'm happy with settling. You don't say it that way, but you got to come up yeah. with a way. So you're, I'm going to settle 
for this job at this price, and I'm going to I'm going to be here forever, even if you're not. Right? I think and the that, best way to sell yourself into that is to whether you are or not define it as a career change. Because yes. then it's reasonable that you would take a step back economically to make that career shift. I have reached a point in my life I've decided that I want to take a different approach to my career. And I love the words different approach to my career because that works when it really is a career change and when it's kind of sort of but it's not. A different approach would be a, a phrase that I would get familiar with. And then, like you were saying, that doesn't mean you always use that. When you're an aircraft engineer and you're applying to be an aircraft engineer, you don't do that. Like you adjust on the – you might use that phrase in your first interview of the day, and if you're lucky you have two, you won't in the second. And you have to be adaptable like that. It's one of the most important things you can do. By the way, on career shifts, some of the most successful shifts into sales I have ever seen have come from engineers, if they can get their head right, because they have a technical understanding, and if they can learn to put that in layman's terms the right way, they are extremely persuasive in a, in a kind of a sales capacity. Absolutely. And, and they have to be able to demonstrate that and show that in the interview. Um, and kind of along those lines, too, we talked about the first date. Um, you don't necessarily tell them everything. Just like when you go on a first date, you don't mm. tell that person everything, everything about your life or about the last person you dated or the relationship you left or whatever. When, you, when you're interviewing for this new job with this new hiring manager – Just tell them what they're asking. You know, uh, again, the subtle things that we want to we want to make ourselves stand out. We want to address that, but but a lot of times people talk themselves out of a job or, or in sales. They talk themselves yeah. out of the purchase order because they talk too long. Oh, Sometimes yeah. you just got to shut up and ask for the purchasing order. If that guy looks like he's about to say yes and you talk, you're wrong. Yep, Other than up. that one little poke to get him off the fence. So we're gonna so do we get a PO now or like how do we get this approved? Shut up. Yep. Right. And you gotta, say, say thank you. Yeah, right. And like when you're applying for a job, you take that same approach. So uh given that I'm willing to start within the next two weeks, when do you think we'll know when this is going? Because I'm interviewing with other people right now, silence. I'm interviewing with other people. You always you go throw little takeaways like that. You know, I'm very impressed with what we've discussed today. I'm excited about this opportunity, but of course, I've got to make a decision, and I'm interviewing with other people. You have to be desirable again, just like that first date. You got yeah. to be desirable. You know, if you're not in this for uh, for more than just one night, then maybe we shouldn't do this. Like that. That's the same. The other thing is like, and I'm seeing your notes, your social media. Like, you and I are old, right? So like, when we were dating and we were single. Googling somebody to f was something, but it didn't mean what it means today. Like, uh, back then, you didn't have a way to kind of check up on people unless, like, you were from a small town and everybody knew everybody, and you might, like, do you know so-and-so, and, like, is there anything I need to worry about? Today, you meet somebody, whether you meet them on or offline, I guarantee you they're going, who is this Jack Spearco clown? Oh, this guy's nuts. No, I'm not dating him, right? So... That's true of employers too, right? So what about like all those social media accounts sitting out there with all your stuff on it? Yeah, exactly. You know, if you're if you're looking for a job, you need to clean up your social media because what employer isn't going to Google you? What what employer isn't going to go look for you on Facebook and YouTube and you know wherever else you may be? And there's a fine line here too. In a way, if the things that you've put out there are representative of your life and they don't want to hire you for that, then you probably don't want to work for them anyways. I mean, that's, that's one way to look at it. But the other way to look at it is 
is you need a job, right? You need, you need to start making a hundred thousand dollars again. And so you're willing to stifle your free speech or whatever, um, in ways to make sure that you get that job because it, because people have, um, you know, we know Jack, the things that you and I believe are not common, common among a lot of people. Right? No, when I left corporate America, I went on a one way trip and burned the bridge behind me. I'm not getting hired. I I'm never getting hired again. No. Exactly. Right. No. Uh, but, but that's because we are entrepreneurs and we are our own bosses. But if you, if you're going to go work for a company, particularly a big fortune 500 company, you got to toe the party line. And so I would advise you clean up your social media. If there's anything there that looks um, vaguely, just vaguely out of line, uh, you you at least you want to find it, how to block it, make it private. Just make sure other people aren't going to see it because they are going to look for it. And I would say, you know, we came up before and through social media. So if you look up John Pugliano, you find John Pugliano on Facebook. If I were a young person starting out today and I wanted to play around on Facebook and YouTube and all these other places, I would not use my name. I would not be myself. Um, I know quite a few people, for instance, that are police officers. They use pseudonyms, etc. They do not use their own name. They do not post pictures of themselves. That way they're free to say what they want and they're not so easy to dox. And exactly. The reason I say that isn't because I'm for censoring speech or whatever. I'm totally opposed to it. However, there are things that get people fired today, that get people harassed today, that will prevent people from being hired today, that five years ago, no one would have given two shits about. No one would have cared. And you don't know next year what the new things is, because it's getting to be well, like, oh, he has an independent thought, and nah, he's got to go. Right? Like, it doesn't even matter what it is. He has an independent thought. He thinks blue butterflies are prettier than orange butterflies. No way he's getting a job. Like, it's getting that bad. I would not be out there being an outspoken person unless that's your job. You know, if you're going to be me or you and you're going to be public and you're going to be out railing on this stuff, that's one thing. If you plan on working for anything from Walmart to freaking Exxon in the next 10 years, I would not be out there as yourself. Yep, that's and that's just the reality of the situation. Right. It's, it's it's just the way it is. You can people can argue that and they can talk about free speech. You can do all those things, but if you're working for the man, you got to conform to those rules. And, and, and it's, it's not fair. I don't like it. It's, no, but it is the way it is. Especially when the the supply is dwindling of jobs, right? So yep. let's also talk about here. Um, well, the, the, that that boycott on social media. The yeah. exception there, though, is LinkedIn. I was going to say, let's back it, up to that because I kind yeah, of skipped it, that. LinkedIn, you, like that is the place like you need to be right now. It, it is the yeah. modern resume, isn't it? It totally, it is. It is is the the resume. It's the the want ads, the classifieds. It's the recruiter. You know, there used to be a whole headhunting, independent headhunting network. I mean, it's LinkedIn is all that. And in fact, we're talking about jobs that have gone away. I know there's still a lot of headhunter recruiters, independent guys that make their money off of LinkedIn, but think of all the small little independent agencies that have been put out of business because of LinkedIn. I mean, this people used to have a little Rolodex of all their little contacts, and uh, you know, guys could make an initi- a, a, a job. They, they could focus on being recruiters and headhunters for a specific little niche within an industry and make a really good living off of it just by knowing, you know, a thousand people, a couple hundred people. Um, 
but that was because they had that Rolodex with the right names and the phone numbers. Well, shoot, that's all on LinkedIn now. Uh, those guys have lost, lost their competitive advantage. But yes, if you are, if you are an employee and you're, uh, I guess if you, I guess a period, if you're an employee, you need to have a LinkedIn. You know, if you're either looking for a job or want to change jobs, um, or even if someday down the road you may want to change jobs, you need to have LinkedIn. You need, you need one to, whether you're, you're thinking you're going to or not, because you, and you need to keep it up to date. You don't know when you're going to need it, right. You don't know when you're going to need it. And you need to update it, uh, you know, a couple times a year, something like that. I mean, yeah. it, it is that important. And particularly if you think you're about to get fired, you need to have that thing so polished and so up to date, like we talked about at the beginning about defining what your abilities and your skills are and concrete examples. That's what you want on LinkedIn. You don't want BS platitudes about you're a leader or, no. you know, you're a, you're a thought expert or a Let thought leader. Guess, or, your cover leader, your cover letter says you are a thought leader and self-directed and motivated. So you're motivated. Right? Let me guess what it says, right? They all say the same shit. You're a humanitarian or you're, uh, a, okay. you know, all these kind of things. You want hard, and this is for a couple reasons, uh, but you want hard things on there about what you're doing. You know, you are an engineer and you develop products and over the last five years, you know, these are the three things you've developed and how much money they've made for your company, right? I mean, what, you know, whatever it is, if you're a, if you're a salesman, what are you specifically selling? Maybe even the sectors or big companies in the industry that you call on, how much you've increased sales in the last three to five years. Uh, you know, if you're an accountant, maybe you do audits. You, you, you say, you know, I do forensic audits. This is how much fraud I've detected, whatever. Yeah. You want to quantify all those numbers, and you do it for two reasons. One is the algorithm. These hiring managers, recruiters, whether they're independents or whether they're corporate recruiters, they are looking for certain buzzwords. And, and the buzzwords are not, you know, humanitarian or <laughs> these, these silly things. They're, yeah. they're looking for specific things. And, and the more granular you can get in terms of your expertise, the better in a lot of ways. You know, if you're, if you can use those, you know, we used to call them $20 words or whatever, you know, the, 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 um, you, Certain something's very specific to your industry. If you can put those in there, they're going to search on those algorithms, and that's where you're going to come up fast in the search. So you want to have it for that reason. But the other reason is, is once the human does finally look at it, you got to get through that initial screening process. When the when the hiring manager or whoever the recruiter looks at it, they like we talked about, they want to see results. They don't care that you're a nice person. They don't care that you like you know, birds and unicorns and stuff they want to know how you're going to make the company money and so they're going to look at the fact that you are a salesman and this is what you've achieved or you're an engineer and this is the type of revenue that you've brought to your company or the type of products you've designed or whatever you discovered you've got to be super specific and the beauty of linkedin is in the old days you know you had a resume and i think the 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 word was always triangular on one page or two pages mm -hmm. max you know you you want to get the most important things there and in front of people the beauty of today with technology yeah you still want to keep it clear and concise but you can put in there links to other things right so you can say 
you know, I, I, I'm an engineer and I worked on this particular project. And then boom, there's a link. So if they're interested in that, they can click the link and then they go to a press release or they go to a YouTube video or an article that can be a blog on LinkedIn. Like instead of saying you're a thought leader, be a thought leader. Like you prove your thought leader. Exactly. So, So put out a couple of articles every year about your industry that aren't even about you, like where the industry's going and, and things like that. Because what's going to happen is that hiring manager is going to look up your your LinkedIn profile, even if you're not found there initially. And they're going to look at you. And those articles, they probably will not actually read them, but they will observe that they're there, and that will confer authority to you whether you deserve it or not. Now, that said, there is a chance that they might read an article or two, especially if it, like lands right on something that they were thinking or something that they're working on. So do not write it at a kindergarten level. Write it at, you know, a professional level, typos, all that crap, right? You don't want that to blow it when it should be an opportunity. Yeah, this goes back to the first dates, right? You want to impress them. You're not going to put your worst work out there. No. You want to put the best of the best there. And if you forecast something like this thing's going to happen and it becomes evident it's not going to happen, take that shit down. Right. <laughs> I mean, if you're trying to get a job, if you're doing journalism like me, leave it up and say this is why I got it wrong. But if you're if you're trying to get a job in engineering and you said, you know, the, the beta disc is going to beat out DVDs, take that one down. Right. But my other thing about LinkedIn is if I were looking for a job today, I would not be relying on LinkedIn to bring me the opportunity. We're going to talk about some other things you can do to go out and get the opportunity. But if you do these things and it gets you the opportunity – that employer is going to look you up on LinkedIn anyway. It's what That's they the first, pl- first place they're going to go to. Especially when you go, even if the, the person that wants to hire you, but you have to go, like it's a big enough company, you have to go through the HR gauntlet. That person in HR, you know, you know, Karen in HR, who justifies her existence every day by coming up with bullshit because she's not really needed. Like she does like, basically you could hire a contractor to work 10 hours a month and do what Karen takes 160 hours a month to do on paper. But she's there. She makes regulations work and whatever. She's going to justify her existence. She's going to go look you up on LinkedIn. And what this makes me think of, one of my greatest mentors was a guy named Frank. And this guy was a legitimate, backwoods, grew up barefoot, North Carolina country boy redneck with a Harvard MBA. That is a very dangerous man. That really is. And when we were doing all these trade shows back in the heyday of technology of the 90s, I would look at the numbers after them, and I'd sit down with him and go, Frank, I cannot, for the life of me, understand why we do this. And he, you're in sales. You should love leads. I'm like, most of the leads are useless. I've looked at the, the revenue historically. We never make enough money off these big Vegas and Atlanta trade shows to ever justify the expense that goes into bringing all the people in, buying a booth, all of this, taking people out of the field. Like, It's maybe break even if we're lucky. He said, you don't understand yet because you're young and you got water behind your ears still. Our customers come there. And, yeah, we already have relationships with them. But if everybody's there and we're not, they start asking, why aren't they there? What's wrong? Are they falling back? They don't have enough money to be here? Um, Do they not care anymore? Are they not paying attention? Are we not worth them showing up? That's all the thoughts that your existing customers that you're trying to cultivate more business out of have if they don't see you there. We're here more than anything else to be seen. And like I said, this was a grew up without shoes, North Carolina redneck with a Harvard MBA. And I learned very quickly once I had that man as my mentor to pay very close attention when he said something. 
Yeah, and that's the way LinkedIn is. It, it, you have, you have to be seen on LinkedIn. If you're, if you, again, not, if you go to my LinkedIn profile, I'm going to violate all the things I'm saying here, right? It's a picture of me with my dog because I don't care, right? Because I'm not, I've burned the bridges. I'm never going to corporate America and my target client person is not going to judge me by my LinkedIn page. Otherwise they wouldn't be my clients. You know, that's, I'm not, I'm not trying to sell anything on LinkedIn, but if you're in the job market or you're working as an employee, you are, and you, you have to have a professional image. Yeah. You know, suit and tie or whatever, whatever's appropriate for the level of, uh, you know, occupation you're in. If you're, if you're a forklift driver, maybe you don't have to have a picture with a suit and tie on, but for a lot of professions, you still need that. And it, and it needs to look good. If you need to get a professional photograph, even better. That's your first date. They're going to find you there. Um, it's so important. The other side of it, though, is that I think a lot of people miss the opportunity on is that LinkedIn is a great uh, source of discovery to be able to go out and find other people that, you know, not only people looking for you there, but you can look for your employers there. There's, a, there's so many search functions where you can search individual jobs. You can search industries. You can search articles. You can search, um, you know, specific people. Be a detective. You you are looking for a job. You're unemployed. Your main job is finding a job, and then pretend you're a detective. You know what would it, what would a detective do to solve a crime? What do you need to do to solve you getting a job? Start with LinkedIn. You would be amazed at all the different names and companies you're going to find out there that you didn't even know existed. And think about intel gathering there. So think about it a little bit unconventionally. So let's say you. You've worked, you've finagled, you're going to have a, uh, an interview with uh, Pugliano Enterprises, right? So it's a big, giant corporation run by this CEO, John Pugliano, and you want to impress, and you're interviewing with some you know, third-layer manager or something like that. And you, Pugliano Enterprises is putting out you know, press releases and stuff like that, but everybody sees that. It would be good to make sure you know that. But you might look for any other employees of Pugliano Enterprises that you can find on LinkedIn. And you might want to connect with them, and you might want to know what's going on. And if they're putting out things that are forward-looking or they're commenting on things that that company's doing that aren't necessarily being put out on, you know, PR Newswire or whatever, you might want to take notes about that. And if one of those people somewhere in the vertical division of Pugliano Enterprises that this manager's in you might want to discuss that, hey, I know you guys are working on, you know, widget XYZ. Because the first thing that guy thinks is, how the hell does he know that? How the hell does he know that? Even though it's public, right? It's just not in your face public. And it, then you start getting into that, I don't want this guy going to work for my competitor. He probably knows shit about my competitor, too. Right? Like, all of a sudden, you're like, this person is different. And that's the person... If you can leave that person with that question on a Friday interview, on Sunday afternoon, they're still thinking, how the hell do you know that? You see what I'm saying, John? Like exactly, having that exactly. kind of data, like you have to take this like an Intel agent. Like you need once, like you can't do this with every company out there. It's, it's not possible. But once you know you're going in, you need to think like, like a CIA operative that's going to go in and pretend to be somebody else. They'll create a whole persona. Well, in this case, instead of creating a persona, you want to understand the personas of the people involved in that chain. That's exactly right. On, on my notes where I talk about standing out, that's exactly the kind of things I'm thinking about where, you know, when you're going in for the interview process, okay, you've already made it through a lot of that first date thing or they wouldn't have chosen you to get to, to that point. But that's where you really have to stand out. And a lot of the standing out is not 
at that point, talking solely about you, showing the knowledge that you have about them, right? You've done that research. You've gone on LinkedIn. You know the, the products they have. Uh, I mean, the great part about LinkedIn, too, is when you're searching for jobs or companies, it'll tell you who you who you know in that company or or um, what's the terminology they use there? I think I forget what this in your you know, whatever who, connections your connection your network. Yeah. yeah, it'll say you know this. You've got a third level connection here. Yes, and, and if you're smart, like you're talking about being an intel guy or a detective, you're going to do that before you ever get in that interview, and you're going to find out that you know your cousin's second brother or something or other works there. You're going to call him ahead of time. And find find out about that. What should I know and, about interviewing with John? I got an interview with the CEO. Is he yeah, a dick? It, is he nice? What is he like? You know, exactly. what does he and, hate? And and can you use him as a reference? Or is that guy yeah. a jerk that you don't want to say you know him, right? Yeah. That you want to you want to be able to attach yourself to to um, people that they value within their own company. And this again, this is something you couldn't do before. You know, you if you were going to go work at um, you know Procter and Gamble with Whatever they have, a hundred thousand employees, uh, you you don't know anybody there, but now you do because just because of that you know six degrees of separation thing, yep. everybody knows somebody at Procter and Gamble now. You just go on LinkedIn and you can figure that out, and and you need to leverage those contacts, and you need to go in those interviews talking. Again, you don't say you're an expert; you go in there and you talk like yep. you're an expert. Be an expert. Be an expert. Um, what do you mean in your notes about making private YouTube videos? What, what's the point? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's another exception to the social media side. A lot of people don't realize this, but you know, on YouTube, you don't have to just have a public video. You can you can put something up there and then um, only really let, let people with, uh, that you send the link to access it, or people that you have you know put their email address or whatever on there. So again, this is high level thing, but if you're going into that job interview or on your resume or on LinkedIn or whatever, where they ask you about a specific item and it's something very important, you can already say, Oh yeah, I've, I've addressed that in this video. You know, I'll send you the link or bring it up right now and show it to them. You can take the time. Again, this gets beyond the, the one or two page resume. You can only put so much on that resume, but if you really want to show your expertise in a field, you can make a private video, and the reason you want to keep it private is, again, you're you're interviewing different companies, different different uh, maybe up and down your le- your your current level of responsibilities. So you know maybe you're that engineer, but you want to get into sales, and they're going to say to you, well, hey, you're you're an engineer. Well, what kind of sales? Sal- You've never sold anything. What kind of sales talents do you have? See, I'm glad you brought that up. Look at you know, and you can refer them to your YouTube video where you've done. Whatever a sales presentation, or you've done something uh, where you've really shown your personality and your creativity that you wouldn't necessarily think a regular engineer would have. I mean, it's just a great way to highlight what you do, but you don't want the whole world to see it. You just want to send it to those select things. And again, specific company, you're going to that company, you really want to work for them. You've done the research. Maybe you have a video that addresses something, you know, that just relates to that company, and it's a. And again, we're not talking a, you know. Big production here, fit. You know, I would type, say type video. You can give that link to that company. Nobody else, and you could have the exact same video for a different company. It's just tweaked a little bit, you know. So you could have ten videos, and only give out the links to where it's appropriate. And I would say on the other side of being public with some videos, if you are going to do any kind of public speaking engagement, and you should, um, a little harder now with all the lockdown crap than it was before. But I've always str- strived to. Uh, get a keynote address at a trade show or whatever. 
If you do that and the organizer is not videoing it, give your buddy a six-pack of beer or a bottle of scotch or something. Have them sit with a little tripod in the front row with a phone in it and get a $50 wireless mic, assuming that the producer doesn't have any problem with it, um, and record it. Because that's, again, being a thought leader instead of saying you're a thought leader, that type of thing. And even if they say, well, we don't want it commercially available or whatever, that's fine. I'm doing it for my own record so I can be a better speaker. And then make it a private video, and then you can share it privately. Like Things like that are incredibly and, and, valuable. You know, so write a valuable. book. So write valuable. a book in your sector. If, if two people buy it, it doesn't matter. You, wrote, you literally wrote the book on it. One of my good friends, one of my other mentors from the past um, – This guy is the architect of the American Airlines Platinum Program. Just to give you an idea of like his level. He wrote a book on customer loyalty. He's now teaching at SMU on customer loyalty. And one of the things he did when he went in, it's a simple book. You know, he went in and said, well, I wrote the book on it. So he had to make a career change mainly because he had had a severe accident and he has some physical limitations now. But he was able to make that career shift, and that book was a big part of it. Yep, that that that's, that is so true. And that that speaking at the podium or at, uh, giving a lecture or an event, even if you don't have the whole thing videotaped, if you have a good ten or fifteen second clip of you standing there with that podium yeah. and that background, that's yeah. all that matters. Yeah, right. They're not going to watch it all anyway. They don't have time they don't for that. Watch crap. It all anyway. Right. That's it. That builds so much credibility. Yeah, I, I agree. So let's also talk about some direct ways. Let's talk about good old-fashioned networking. Is that is that dead? Is it all automated, or do we need, still need to do old-fashioned networking? And yeah, nothing's ever dead. The, the technology just enhances it, right? So you still need to network because, again, at the end of the day, it's coming down to people, uh, a people-type people thing. you got to have the chemistry. You have to have uh, the human contact there. So you have to network. But like all things, it work, your networking is going to work best if you already have the social capital in place, right? I mean, how many times do you see somebody get on LinkedIn? It's never been there before. They haven't updated their stuff in 10 years, but they get on there now because they just lost their job. And so they're reaching out to people that haven't heard from them in a decade. Yeah. Um, you, the networks work the best. I mean, I can think through my career. I don't know. I had maybe six, seven, eight different jobs, um, you know, high-level career jobs, uh, almost every one of them came from somebody I knew, right? It was either somebody I'd already worked for or somebody I worked that had referred me or uh, a headhunter or recruiter that had developed a relationship that placed me in a different company. I mean, just, I guess there were two times when I just answered an ad type thing, uh, but I actually didn't even answer an ad. There were two times when I wrote a letter directly to the company not even knowing they were hiring because it wasn't even listed. Um, so, but, but all the other times I've gotten a job, it came from that personal network. So absolutely, networking is your key way to get a job. It's the way you're going to find out about jobs. It's the way you're going to get in ahead of other people. Um, but, yeah, it, it works best. To, it's like planting the tree. You should have done it 20 years ago. But if you haven't, start today. You, you know, work and be careful network. if you haven't and you all of a sudden do – with the people that you have not kept up with. Because I've had people show up out of the blue. They look me up on LinkedIn. They go, holy crap, this guy's got thousands of connections. I remember him. He can help me out. 
And I'm pretty straight with them. Like, you know, most of my connections are people that listen to my podcast. I don't have these industry connections that we used to both rely on. And frankly, it's a little offensive that I haven't heard from you in 10 years. Exactly. Exactly. And so all of a sudden, you want my help, right? Influence. Like, you know, if you want it, if you want good friends, be a good friend all the time, not just when you need people. And that, and that's the key right there. And that's that's the whole thing of networking. And you see this with top level presidents of companies and CEOs and stuff. They're always getting other people jobs, you know, helping yeah. other people's kids. I mean, I've sat in a lot of meetings where. You know, someone's kids graduating from college and the vice president or president will be like, oh, yeah, we don't have any place here, but I can get them a job. You know, I'll refer them to this guy over there. And the reason they're doing that is because they're always looking for good candidates that they can, uh, you know, they can refer to their their friends. And then whenever their kid needs a placement or whenever they need a new job, they've already got a network in place. That's how those guys got to be CEOs and presidents and vice presidents because they know how to work their networks. You know, I had a recruiter that worked for me one time. He did the biggest placement our, our contract agency ever had. Um, we got a huge fee. He made a big commission, put a guy into a position as a CTO up in Michigan, and we're working out of uh, uh, Texas. And I'm like, so when are you going to get your ass on a plane and go up there and talk to him? He's like, well, I already looked into it. There's really no other opportunities right now in that man's company. I almost threw him through the window. Like Undertaker by the throat style through the window. I'm like, I don't even care if we ever place a janitor at the company he's working at now. You just placed a guy that's making about a half a million dollars a year into a job that's making him a half a million dollars a year plus a huge bonus structure. And he was already making lots of money when you did that. Do you think his friends that he knows that trust his opinion, do you think there are a bunch of people that work at a high school taking garbage out to the dumpster, or do you think there are other people that have the type of jobs that he has? Which one of those do you think is more likely? And he looked at me like, oh. and yeah, I mean, like, oh, you're so lucky you're the guy that made this connection, because really what I want to do with you right now is dispose of you. <laughs> But I had to actually threaten him to get him on an airplane. And he ended up making a ton of money off this guy, but it was a little bit over time. Those connections are so valuable. And you, people need to realize that people tend to know other people like themselves. So when you make those high-level connections, you need to cultivate them. And I'm not talking about using people. I'm just talking about appreciating people for who they are. Yeah, and you're, and it's not, it's, it's not using someone when you're providing them something as well, right? And that's the whole point. You've yeah. got to build this social capital up early. The reason you can go to that person and ask for a job or a referral or, uh, you know, mentoring or something, the reason you can do that is because you've been doing that for them in, in some kind of a capacity over the last 10 years. Maybe you didn't get them a specific job, but you shared information with them. You helped them get business leads. Uh, you provided them with, you know, knowledge and information from your industry that they can use in theirs. Um, and or you're just friends, right? You, you're a great golfer and you golf with a guy and you, you, Teach him, help him with his golf swing, whatever, you know, you're a duck hunter. You, you, you take him to your, your favorite place to go hunt ducks or fish. It's whatever you're building that social capital with him. The, the reason you can come in and cash in later is because you've already, you have that reserve with that person. And you've, and you, again, if you haven't started doing that, you need to start and look at where, and you start like anything with where you are. Look at where you are. Who are you working for? Who in your company are the movers and shakers? Who do you know outside your company? Who are the suppliers? 
that uh, you know they come in and try and sell your company products or they supply your company with raw materials or services. Get to know those people. And it, it might be one of those things, again, where you're, you're reinventing yourself. Your job may go away. You may not be able to be an accountant or a manager or an engineer in the field that you've been in with your company, but maybe you can apply that up the supply chain. You know, Maybe you can work for someone that was developing products for your company or maybe – um, you know, a service provider that doesn't necessarily need engineering skills, but, you know, you're coming as, a, as an insider to that type of industry and they want to hire you and you're going to transition now from being an engineer to being a manager, but they can still use your expertise. They're never going to know about you unless, unless you've reached out to them. So work up and down your supply chain, your customers, you should know, you know, I, so many times I've talked to engineers or IT guys that work for a big company. And I, you know, ask them what they do, what their company does outside of, you know, their little area of expertise or who their clients, customers are. And for me, it's mostly research for investing. And I'm like, gee, this is a big successful company. I wonder who the smaller companies are that they sell to. Maybe I should be looking at their stocks. And, but a lot of times these guys will look at me with kind of like the blank look and say, like, I, I, I don't know who our customers are. I don't know what we do. It's like, you, you can't be that way. You have to. You have to know the customers you're servicing, not only so you can provide them with better products and services, but someday you may be using them for a job referral or someday you may be going to work for them. So work that network up and down the supply chain. Yeah, I, I agree completely. What about old-fashioned skills like cold calling, direct mail, even modern, more modern like email is not really a modern skill anymore, but – yeah, it's interview so, research. Like, like, how do we get like kind of Colombo nuts and bolts on on the ground at that? Yeah, it's so surprising. You know, so many people don't know what cold calling is anymore. And old sales guys like me and you, I mean, that's how we. I know how. That's how I cut my teeth. I'm sure you did your share of cold calling. Absolutely. Um, you, you obviously, you know, cold calling never worked when it was just cold calling, right? And so it's not going to work today if you're just randomly calling people. But, um. I mean, a, and when I talk about a cold call, I just don't mean sending an email or uh, something. I'm talking about actually picking up the telephone and calling somebody. And that may sound rude or intrusive to millennials or something where, like, well, somebody I don't know is just going to call me. Um, it, but th that's because they're used to these robocalls where people are trying to sell you health insurance or, um, you know, the, the, the warranty is about to expire on your, on your outback, Jack. <laughs> push, yeah. push one to learn, push one to learn more about your warranty. It's not those kind of calls. I mean, you, you, a cold call being, you're calling someone that either you don't know or you don't know well, and they're not expecting your call, and you have a specific objective, you know, as, as you, you know, you're looking for a job, so you either want to get an interview or you want to get a referral or you want to get something out of this person. Don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call someone you don't know. Because I'll tell you, in this technological age, a lot of that doesn't take place anymore. It is those robocalls. It's the computer, computers and the annoying things calling. But to, uh, to be a real live human being calling someone with a specific objective in mind and being able to, you know, quickly transition depending upon how the way the, f the phone call goes, you'd be amazed at, at people will talk to you. Um, and, and I'm even that way. I almost never pick up my phone because I, you know, caller ID. If I don't know who it is, I don't answer it. But every now and then I will. And, and most people I, I hang up from right away or because it's robocalls. But I mean, if someone actually calls me and engages me, I'll stay on the line because I'm shocked that they actually engaged me. And, uh, 
So, so cold calling works, but it's like anything else. You have to have the uh, objective. You, had to, you have to do your intel. You have to be the detective and know exactly who this person is, what they can do for you, what their position is, and, and be direct and ask that question. And, and again, you'll be shocked at how many times they'll refer you to somebody else or they'll um, let you come in and talk to them. And that's, <laughs> that's really what you want in a lot of cases is, is getting in front of someone. You're call, you know, rather than just sending your resume to a company where a thousand other people have already submitted because they've seen the, the job posting on LinkedIn, you've done your research. You found out who the hiring manager is or at least someone you think is the hiring manager. It's in the right category. It may not be exactly the right person. But you, you call them up and just say, hey, I'm interviewing for such and such a job. You know, can I have two seconds of your time or can I ask you about this or that? And again, if you have a really clear, succinct question, people will answer you. People want to be nice. People want to help other people. And don't, so don't disregard the old school style of cold calling. Yeah, I completely agree. My rule with cold calling is get, get a reason that person should not hang up onto you into their ear within 30 seconds. Right. Just something that like they would want to know more about or that catches their attention. Um, what about relocation? I think there's a lot of opportunity right now for those that are willing to relocate and not being willing to relocate can be very limiting, uh, in, in a time where we have so much transition going on. Yeah. That's relocation. I think is the key to all this and the key to all this permanent, the, the permanent unemployment isn't because there's not jobs. It's because the jobs and the people aren't in the right place. And even with all the remote working and the Zoom phone calls and the things that we've talked about, uh, I keep saying Zoom. I guess Zoom isn't the. Um, yeah, I guess I guess Zoom is is the preferred method. Um, you know, but whether it's it's Zoom phone calls or working remote, there's there's a place for that. But there are still people that are going to have to relocate for a job. That you know, the job is in a different city or a different state. And they're going to want you to be proximity. Even if you are working a lot of the time remotely, they're going to want you in the home office so many days a week. That's not going away. And again, if you, if you don't believe this, go to LinkedIn, look at the jobs and see the, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of jobs that are out there. There are jobs. There are jobs there that you can probably do, but they're just not in your town. And so you got to think about relocating. And that's the hardest possible thing you can do because it disrupts your family. Uh, can definitely disrupt your finances if you can't sell your home or you, you know, own a home you're underwater in, um, uh, or, you know, you're moving to an area that has a higher cost of living, higher rents from what you're used to. So relocation is, is the hardest part of this, but it is really critical. I mean, people, if you're, if you're in a small town in West Virginia, you know, and the, the big factory or the big employer, got rid of your job, you don't, don't wait for some politician to bring the job back. It is probably not coming back. You probably have to move. And so be prepared to do that. But what I'd say is, and this kind of gets back to even taking a pay cut. If you have to go to a job where you're taking, you know, taking a pay cut, a pay cut is better than no pay. Mm -hmm. So if you, you know, if you were making 150, now you're only going to make 120. Well, 120 is better than your unemployment running out. So you, you have to come to terms with the reality of it. Same way with relocating. You need to come into terms with the fact that a job is probably not happening anytime soon where you live. So you need to move, but the move necessarily doesn't have to be permanent, just like that pay cut isn't necessarily going to be permanent. Um, again, this is one of those things where you don't share all the truth with your new employer 
Um, so many times I, I, people, you know, call me to get counseling or mentoring when they're unemployed and I'll talk to them and, and they'll have one of those kind of things. Well, you know, I'm willing to move, but I don't want to stay there long or this or that. And I'm like, don't tell the employer all those things. Just get the job. You, you may get the job and find out you love living in Arizona or, you know, Minneapolis or this new city. You don't know that. You don't know that until you've lived there. Um, a lot of times people say, um, uh, you know, they're, they're going to move and they don't want to tell the new employer that they're going to move. And I'm like, well, you, you think you're going to move, but you haven't moved yet. You know, you're, you're taking the job under these particular circumstances. Maybe in a year, your circumstances are going to change. You're going to leave that job, but you don't need to tell the employer all that stuff up front now. Wait and see what happens. You get that job with them. Maybe after they see what a great employee you are, they'll let you relocate back to your hometown or, you know, maybe they'll let you start working remote or you only have to come in the office a couple times a month instead of a couple times a week. But that, but that is not the conversation you necessarily want to start with because they don't want the aggravation, right? They just want to hire someone that's going to do a job and they don't want to make all these special accommodations for you. So know that you're probably going to have to relocate and, you know, guys like us that have been in the military, we know about that. We, we deploy all the time. Think about it in terms of maybe it's a deployment. If you're, if you're in your late fifties or early sixties and you, you get laid off and you do get a new job and it's in a different state, uh, you're probably going to retire in five years anyways, right? So maybe it becomes a five year deployment. You know, maybe that's not optimum. It isn't, it, it's maybe going to cost you a little bit more money. It's going to be inconvenient. You're not going to be with your family as much, but, it's only five years, right? Or it's only two years or six months. You know what? Again, guys in the military would get deployed. They may not always like it, but we went where we were told to go and we made the best of it and, you know, we survived. So if you've got to take a short term assignment or even a, a 12, 12 month job assignment to go somewhere else, get on a payroll. Cause the important part of all this is, is, is it's always easier to get a job when you have one. So if you're unemployed, and you're living in Pittsburgh, but you're unemployed and you can't get a job there, rather than sitting in Pittsburgh for a year trying to find a job, you're better off moving to you know, Cleveland and getting a job there and coming home on weekends or whatever and searching for your new job from that job in Cleveland because you're already on a payroll. Employers, again, that first date thing, the desirability, they want to hire somebody that's already working somewhere else. Because they think that you're obviously good or you want to have a job somewhere. So, but that's not what you tell your new employer, that first employer. You don't say, hey, I'm going to work here for six months and leave. <laughs> that, cause, and you, and again, it's not like you're lying to them. You just, you, that's not true. You may end up loving it and moving to Cleveland and staying there forever. So get that job, even if it means moving out of town. And you know what? Live in a van, right? Live in, live out of your car. Rent, uh, rent, a you know, Airbnb bedroom from somebody or something. You don't have to necessarily pack up and move your whole family if it's a, quote, deployment or a temporary move. Go get the job, figure things out, find a way to have, you know, drastically low living expenses. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not your employee. And, again, this is something you don't share with your employer. When he asks you, are you all moved in, you don't tell him, oh, I'm living – in my van down by the river, you know, it's, yeah, it's my PO box, mail my check here, whatever. He, he doesn't have to know that you're sleeping in the parking lot. You don't want him to know that because, uh, you know, you want to be portable. You want to be able to jump to the next job right away and they're not going to appreciate that. But those are the kind of things that you need to do 
to to get on a payroll. And you know, I'm not in line to do it now, but I did it when I was young. I I did contract work and I was paid per diem to pay for hotel room and I would spend, you know, out of a five day week, three nights sleeping in my truck because that let me put all that money in my pocket and it let me take a job where I could learn more and get opportunity. And it's hard to do that when you're 40. It's a lot easier to do it when you're 23. But if that's what you got to do, you got to remember how hungry you were back then. And, and, and that's the differentiator today. That, that's what it is. It's a matter of being hungry and having the, uh, the discipline and the strength to overcome that. And you, and you, sometimes you have to make really tough decisions to get a job or to stay on a payroll because that, I mean, it's like life is not easy. And, uh, and again, you know, guys like us, we're, we're 20 year overnight successes. People look at us and say, wow, I want to be like you. It's like, yeah, you didn't want to be like me 30 years ago. No. Um, and, and again, sometimes in our career, we have to step back. We have to, uh, we, you know, I say I burned the bridges and I'd never go get another job again, right? I would if I really had to, although I don't have to because I'd figure out how to start another business. But that, that's, that's a whole different skill in that's, another show. That's, that's a thing where the, the brain computer has coded a certain way and it doesn't go back, right? right. Like you just, you, I, I will create a new business. I'm not doing, you know, but that's something that if that's you, you already know. And you if it's not that. you, I can't make you into that. You'll have to decide whether you want to take that, that, You know, that, like, people are about unplugging from the Matrix. The Matrix isn't this, like, one thing that jams into your neck, like in the movie. There's, like, dozens of cables attaching you to the Matrix, and they're severed individually. That's a different cable. And we're not going to go there today because we don't have time. Not today. It's, and, and, and there are people that are never going to become entrepreneurial, right? And, yeah. and it's okay. I mean, there's, there's, we need employees, and there's a lot of benefits of being employed. <laughs> There is. Specifically, no. specifically the benefits, right? Yeah. I mean, my, my health care is, uh, and things like that are, are, are things I have to worry about is being self-employed. When you're employed with a big company, you just get big company benefits. You don't have to worry about those things. The, the, financially, the best off I ever was in my life was when TSB had taken off and I wanted to leave, but my partner begged me to stay for another six months. Because I had a corporate job, a corporate income, my corporation was paying all my matching Social Security up to the cap. I didn't pay any Social Security on my business earnings. I got all the deductions of the business, and they paid for my health insurance and my benefits. Like, I couldn't have keep doing that forever. It would have been wrong uh, morally. It also would have killed me. Like, emotionally, I would have just fell apart. Um, but, boy, that was pretty good. Like, there is a benefit to being an employee. Absolutely, and I guess sort of going down that path, not to say full-time entrepreneurial people, but people that are employed that get laid off and they don't want to, they don't don't want to have their own business, they could possibly look at contract work or you know freelance Side work. hustles. I don't care, deliver it, it, packages for Amazon, yeah, but Uber even, even, Eats, anything. Well, even in their industry, I mean, there's a. You may not be able to go out and get a hundred fifty thousand dollar job because that's not in the company's, um, you know, budget right now to do that. But they may have $15,000 they can pay you to work on a project, right? And if you can get 10 companies to do that, you've now yeah. replaced your income. Yeah. So it's a lot easier to get someone to write a $15,000 check than a $150,000 check. So. Well, really great episode, and I've already broken it in half at that point. What I did is I grabbed about the last two minutes there and – repeated it tomorrow so it'll be like when you are watching something on netflix and you you stop it and then you come back and it, it backs up a couple minutes for you to catch you up 
We'll try to do that tomorrow. And uh, if you're listening to it tomorrow or later, or you're listening to this episode tomorrow or later, you can go ahead right away if you want to binge it out, a la Netflix, and listen to the other half. But I think it, it worked out really well to do that. It gives me kind of an extra day this week, uh, half an extra day because it's still time to produce, um, to, uh, to work on getting ready for the, uh, the coming event. With that, let's wrap things up. Let me remind you guys that you can help support this show. And you can do that um, in, in a variety of ways. But one of the easiest, most pain-free ways that you can do it is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I chose that domain because, well, I mean, come on. It's, it's, it's easy to remember, isn't it? Like you're going to buy something online. You like the TSP uh, community and you want to help us out. You go to tspaz.com and do your shopping and you find... All kinds of cool stuff that I've recommended over the years. I mean, I own it, I use it, I bought it, I spent my money on it, I'd buy it again, and if I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it to you. And uh, I'm working on some thoughts about blowing that shopping portal out beyond its current limitations by going by we go into next year. But right now, there's over 500 reviews that pass that qualification test. You don't go there and see, well, Jack has picked out five uh, food processors, and this is the one that's the best value for the money, and this is the best overall. Like It's all these Amazon review sites, and I'll do shit like that. No, you get like, I own this one, and this is why, and this is why I would recommend you buy it. Because I believe that's what, that's what you're supposed to do when you're being an advocate for somebody. You, you find the best, and if it's not the best, you find a better one. And you always take the value for the money equation into it there. It's like, what is the best bang for the buck based on what this thing is and what I can expect for it? Today is one of the best bang for the bucks I can find in Bluetooth headphones. It really is. I, uh, I have looked at, that's, if you're hearing a weird sound in the background, that is Billy Ray Bob. Who's Billy Ray Bob? He is the new rooster at Nine Mile Farm, the little bantam uh, porcelain rooster. He is just now learning to crow. Anyway, uh, on Bluetooth headsets. Uh, I have been, always been a huge fan of Anchor. I've brought this headset around before. Ever since I found it, I've been bringing it around whenever it goes on sale. These are the Q10 Bluetooth headphones. These things are fantastic. I bought a pair when they went on sale for $29 bucks like they're on today. I got them. My wife said, we really need another you know, gadget or whatever. She put them on. She listened to me. So she got me a pair. I mean, it was, she was yelling because she had the phone, you know, you can't hear it. Get me a pair, right, loud. Like, all right, I'll get you a pair next time they go on sale. Um, they're just that good. The, the, I mean, sure, a $300 pair of Beats or something is better. I can't tell. My hearing's not that good. Um, I love these. My, my grandson uses them all the time with his homeschooling now. Because when he's sitting there going through his lessons and his sister's making noise and his grandma's in the kitchen, whatever, he, he doesn't hear all the peripheral noise. That's a, that's a use for something like this that I, I don't think we tend to think of. Because they do block out. They're not noise-canceling, but I, as far as I'm concerned, they may as well be. You, you can't have a conversation with them on your ears if the music's not playing. I mean, they're that good at blocks. So situational awareness, be aware of that. But they're usually 45 bucks. To me, there's not a better pair of headphones on the market for $50. It, it doesn't exist. When they go on sale like they are today, man, it is the way to go. They were actually on sale for like 25 for the red and black ones, but they sold out before I even got up this morning. Um, the orange and blue and the all blacks are on sale for 29 and 32 respectively. Both are a great deal. That color doesn't matter to me. I will say one thing about different colors. If, like me, you, you have somebody in your family and it's like, we don't really need those, and they try them to get me a pair, and you have two pairs... Kind of cool if they're not the same color. 
that does kind of help with the whole, those are mine. No, they're not. You don't have the red and black ones. You have the orange and blue ones, that type of thing. So, also, Christmas is coming. I know it seems far away yet, but next thing you know, it will be Halloween. It's this week. And then it will just slam by right into Turkey Day. And then, you know, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, all that good stuff. I don't want to participate in that. I want all my holiday stuff done before the turkey goes in the oven. There is no one who listens to podcasts, likes audio, you know, listens to audio books, listens to music, whatever, that would not love these. I'm telling you, even people that use a little earbuds or whatever, there's certain times when just having that kind of over-the-ear, total isolation, getting immersed in an audio book, studying, listening to music, and really not having all the peripheral noise is just amazing. These things at $29, the way I would describe them is stupid cheap. Check them out today, and remember, you can always support us no matter what you buy at tspaz.com, where you can help us out so easily. It doesn't even cost you any extra money. Uh, also, do consider becoming a member. If you become a member, you get a bunch of discounts and pays for your membership. That's all I'll say about that today as we wrap up with our song of the day. Yesterday, we had a song from Queen, kind of one of the premier bands of rock music, uh, especially of the past. Today we have a totally different genre of music and a totally different type of song. And it is one of the deepest songs that I've ever heard. Um, it goes back to 2005 and it was released by Sawyer Brown. Now Sawyer Brown, a lot of people don't really know their story. Uh, there used to be a show with a dude named uh, Ed McMahon uh, who was kind of the sidekick of Johnny Carson. right? And uh, he had a show called Star Search. And Star Search was just like, you know, it's kind of like today we have like, I don't know what they call them, but there's there's a bunch of shows like that. The Oh, I can't. America's Got Talent or whatever. It was kind of the, the, that show of the day in the 80s. And, you know, they had spokesmodels and singers and different acts and all. And for all the bluster about it being Star Search, they literally created almost no stars. This thing ran for years. It was incredibly popular, but people would win it. They got bragging rights. They made some money. Almost nobody came off that show and actually became a star, except for one band. They were known as the Mark Miller Band, and they either won their year or they came in second. It was something like that. Well, Mark Miller Band just really didn't seem to work out in the recording industry to catch an ear, so they changed the name to Sawyer Brown. That's where they came from, and they have had some real... Amazing mega hits over the years. And by 2005, they were an old band, um, but they were still making good music. This song, they don't understand. The storyline in this song is a woman coming home with children just acting up and the people around them saying, Hey, don't you care? Like, don't you do some of your kids? And she says, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do because their father just died last night while we were at the hospital with them, and they don't understand, and I, I don't know what to do. Now, I, I remember actually reading a very similar story to this in, a, in a, a business book. I don't remember whose it was, but this goes back to the 90s, so this is good 8, 10 years before this song ever came out. It was a very similar story, and it was it purported by the author in the book to be a true story, And it was a guy with kids acting like this on a subway train in New York. And same type of thing, people looking, staring, whatever. And he actually was the one that spoke up and said, hey, you need something with your kids. And 
he turns to the guy and says, oh, I, and, he, and not really directly with this song, but the same situation, you know, basically, oh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't even notice. Their mom just died in the hospital we're coming from. I, I, I don't know what to do. Not they don't understand. I just I, I don't I don't know what to do. And this is a fundamental of the human world that we tend to not notice the pain and suffering and misery of those around us. We we tend to notice our own and we tend to notice it when it is with somebody connected directly to us, and then we even limit that. And I'm going to tell you that it's not all wrong. There is a, a reason for it, and that is that something terrible, something terribly tragic is happening at every second of every day somewhere. Someone is being killed in an accident. Somebody is dying of a terminal disease. Somebody is being paralyzed for life. Somebody is losing their cognitive function. Somebody's losing a mother or a son or a daughter or a brother every second of every day. And to live our lives and have purpose and meaning and love and joy and anticipation and accomplishment in our lives, we can't sit around constantly worried about everything going wrong everywhere for everybody. And if we tried, we would short-circuit our emotions to the point where we'd become numb to all of it. So in of itself, it's not terrible. But we do need to be mindful of this self-defense mechanism, because that's what it is. And be careful of how much we look down at people around us in situations where things seem to be one way. We may find that they are completely another and we should always ask ourselves what would i do if i was in this person's situation with a full understanding of you do not know what their situation is you know what you see you don't know where they were five minutes before you see what you see now or five days or five months or five years before you don't know what led up to that moment And what this song is really about is understanding and finding the empathy within ourselves to be able to at least consider the fact that that person might be in need of a little bit of compassion. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. A mother riding on a city bus Kids are yelling, kicking up a fuss Everybody's staring, not knowing what she's going through Somebody said, don't you even care? Do you let them do that everywhere? She slowly turned around, looked up and stared. She said, please forgive them, but they've been up all night. Their father struggled, but he finally lost his fight. He went to heaven in the middle of the night. So please forgive my children They don't understand Everybody's busy with their own situation Everybody's lost in their own little world Bottled up, hurried up, try to make a dream come true They don't understand Everybody's living like there ain't no tomorrow Maybe we should stop and take a little time Cause you never really know what your neighbor's going through 
man driving on the interstate, slowing down traffic, making everybody wait, and everybody staring, not knowing what he's going through. Somebody honk from the passing lane, yelled out the window, ain't got all day. The old man looked around and he caught his eye. He said, "Please forgive me." You know it's been a long life. My wife has passed away, and my kids don't have the time. I've been left all alone, and it's getting hard to drive. So please forgive me, children. They don't understand. Everybody's busy with their own situation. Everybody's lost in their own little world. Try to make a dream come true. They don't understand. Everybody's living like there ain't no tomorrow. Maybe we should stop and take a little time. 'Cause you never really know what your neighbor's going through. They don't understand. A man hanging on a wooden cross, giving everything to save the lost. Everybody's staring, not knowing what he's going through. Somebody said you don't have a prayer. If you're a king, come on down from there. Ben just turned his head, looked up instead. He said, "Please forgive them, for they have not seen the light. They'll come to know me when I come back to life. Go to heaven." Make everything alright. So please forgive your children. They don't understand. Everybody's busy with their own situation. Everybody's lost in their own little world. Bottled up, hurried up, try to make a dream come true. They don't understand. Everybody's living like there ain't no tomorrow. Maybe we should stop and take a little time. But you never really know what your neighbor's going through. They don't understand. A mother riding on a city bus, kids are yelling, kicking up a fuss. Everybody's staring, not knowing what she's going through.